This is K-12 Tech Talk. K-12 Tech Talk. The podcast by K-12 Techs for K-12 Techs. Real conversations, real arguments, and real banter on trending K-12 technology topics and issues. Live from the somethingcool.com studios, this is the K-12 Tech Talk podcast. You can find us on Twitter. You can email us, give us uh, some shout outs, share us with your friends. That's how we expand our footprint. That's how we get more listeners. Um, something of note, somethingcool.com is actually an Eaton Triplite partner. So we will talk about Eaton in a little bit. Um, but if you are in the market for some UPS or wire management or power management, look at Eaton. We'll go into a little bit of discussion about that a little bit later. Um, Mark, it's been an interesting week in. K-12 IT, hasn't it? Uh, sorry about my dog. Uh, yes. yes. <laughs> um, it's, been a, it's been a crazy week for me. We Today was actually our first official day of school. And so oh, I'm, I'm just exhausted. But at the same time, we have been talking quite a lot about what's going on in the rest of the country. So you're probably talking about one significant event. Yes. Josh, yes. That is the LAUSD uh, cyber attack. Yeah, and I guess we, you and I, and Chris were texting. Ah. Your dog, it's fine. Every episode we have a dog bark. It's either Mark's dog or Chris's dog. It's fine. Um, I guess you, the three of us, were texting you, you, Chris, and I about Monday night. I guess when kind of, and I had seen some some things on Twitter about it. Um, LA Unified kind of shut down operations or IT operations. Monday, I guess, they fell victim to a ransomware attack over the weekend, and um, they I think they've done a really good job about being transparent on Twitter about the current state they're in, what systems are down, what systems are up, what they're asking employees and students to do, um, and then communications with parents. Um, yeah. From, from yeah. an outsider, I think they've done a pretty darn good job. Yeah. And, and, you know, at this point, we're, we're, we're really just talking about what we know from Twitter and from Facebook and, and, and everything we're talking about here is what LAUSD has put out to the public and which is, which is not something you normally see. Sometimes you'll see districts kind of, Hey, we had a cyber issue or cyber incident. And then here's some things that need to happen. But LAUSD came out very early on and said, there has been a, uh, an attack from the outside uh, and then over the next few days over Twitter and their Facebook account kind of released that, hey, we did have a cyber attack. We are working very closely with the federal authorities. In fact, I think just last night or the day before I saw one saying, I know people are asking for more information, but because we're working with the authorities, here's why we cannot say things. So they're even, you know, even being honest with their population around why they can't share more. Um, and then using social media to really tell folks next steps. So it sounds like from from reading their uh, their their public announcements, they really had to shut down a lot of internal systems and have people resetting their passwords. And so social media has been critical both with getting their story out there, but also communicating with their students and and staff because that it sounds like that's one of the the only ways that they they have been able to. So right. So, you know, our hearts go out to the folks at LAUSD. They've got a monumental task on their hands right now, but they have done a really great job with the superintendent, CIO, the whole leadership team getting out there in front of the public to, saying, here's what's going on. Here's what we know. Here's why we can't talk about too much. Uh, and then here's what you need to do. So kudos to the LAUSD team. 
And I, I think it's interesting. Their first tweet was back on September 5th that they they went public and they said, hey, we know we have a technical issue. This is what's going on. We're aware of it. And then on the 6th, I found this really interesting. They they uh, I were using Twitter as a way to communicate with staff because their internal email system was a, was down. Apparently, they they tweeted on the 6th, giving faculty time ranges on when they needed to reset their password so they weren't overwhelming the system all at once with i think they have yeah. what 30 36,000 faculty members trying to start trying no, way, to reset way more way more way, yeah they're oh, really? they're okay. uh, they're just just below 500,000 students so that's a that's a monumental uh number of password resets right yeah so it, it's interesting and i would not have thought okay let's uh <clears throat> let's stagger our password reset requests so that we don't overwhelm the system yeah. Um, so, so yeah, you're right, Mark, our, our hearts go out to LAUSD and those folks, cause we know they are burning, uh, the midnight oil trying to recover mm -hmm. from this. So, uh, check out their Twitter account. It's, uh, LAUSD. Um, so I guess the biggest part of this, of this episode, uh, this is episode 88. I don't know if I said that. Um, we are lucky enough to have Randy Rose with us today. He agreed to come on. I'm not real sure why. Uh, we told him to listen to episodes ahead of time to know what he was getting into. Um, Randy is, uh, I saw Randy a couple of weeks ago. It's been about, about a month ago, I guess, uh, at the MS ISAC conference. He gave one of the keynote addresses on one of the mornings and uh, had some very valuable information. His background is very uh, respectable. I was actually very, very impressed with uh, his track record and his work history. It's he's got a pretty cool work history, and now he uh, is at working with CI Security and MSISAC, protecting the SLTTs, the state and local governments or territories, um, with cyber incidents and and making sure that everyone is prepped. So, Randy, uh, we really appreciate you coming on, and thanks for doing this. Well, thanks for having me. I'm happy to yeah. be here. So give us a little bit of background, um, some, of, some of that background that you shared at the conference, if you can, about um, how you got to where you are today. Yeah, you know, honestly, I, I would say it's probably a lot of luck, uh, <laughs> more, more so than, than skill. Uh, I think, uh, you know, for me, it's, it's always, uh, I'm kind of nomadic in nature. I grew up in a military family, so uh, every, I get bored quickly and I'm ready for a change every few years. And so my my career history has very much been like that. I I actually started. I went to school to be an anthropologist. Uh, oh, I wanted wow. to, yeah, I wanted to be Indiana Jones uh, when I was a kid. So uh, a lot of people think of him as just you know a treasure hunter, but uh, he was he was actually an anthropology professor. That's what I was interested in doing. And uh, my first semester at at the university, I realized uh, digging in the dirt for pottery shards was really not <laughs> my jam. So. Um, I ended up in the military and I, I actually went in to do more production, video production and combat photography, you know, hmm. was all those kinds of things I was interested in. And, you know, my recruiter's like, well, you know, you're pretty good at computers. You scored pretty high on the ASVAB. Why don't you uh, try this one job? And that, of course, that's, you know, he knew what he was doing. He was funneling me into a, a job that they needed. And that kind of the rest is history. I, I was, you know, a cyber guy before it was called cyber uh, in the air force and you know that's kind of where i cut my teeth professionally and it really on the admin side primarily and uh i had a clearance uh, because i worked mostly in nuclear missile communications hmm. and so you know i came out of that job and the computer jobs that were available uh that i could get into quickly were ones that required somebody to have a clearance so i 
kind of pivoted into security as I was transitioning out of the military and uh, ended up working for the state of New York for a few years. Uh, I got pulled in kind of in an early program that they were doing uh, with the state comptroller's office where they're really looking at what, you know, doing cybersecurity audits and pen tests and things like that at the local government level. And that's really my, where I really first started getting involved with K-12 security. But as you might imagine, I mean, this was 15 years ago. So right. there wasn't a lot of security in place at the time. And, you right, know, you, right. Not a lot to penetrate, right? I mean, you right. just walk in and plug something in. And, uh, you know, so the pen tests were, were not as exciting as you might think. But where I, where I ended up, uh, I think where I learned the most there was was actually in the municipal utility space. So I got an opportunity to, to work on cybersecurity audits of water systems and, and port systems here in New York. From there, I went to federal government for a few years. I got an opportunity to, to help stand up a cyber threat intelligence capability for the Navy, and then an opportunity to go overseas. Uh, spent a couple of years in Germany, presented itself, and always wanted to live overseas. And my wife uh, was nice enough to say, yeah, let's do it. So <laughs> spent some time over there until COVID happened. And when I was at the state, I was very involved with, with in New York State, I was very involved with CIS and the MSI SAC, as you might imagine because they're headquartered out of uh, New York and specifically in the Albany area. So right. I was I was actually used to come over here all the time and, and hang out and got to know some of the folks here. So when I was looking to come back stateside, my wife said, look, I'm tired of moving around. I want to go back home to New York. First people I called up was CIS and said, hey, what do <laughs> you got? And the rest is history. That's cool. So um, you've been, I guess, back, you've been in stateside over the last, what so you said, since COVID. So a couple of years. So um, since you've been at MSI SAC, what's, what's kind of been your role? Are you, are you wrangling K-12s? Are you more than K, are you, are you helping more than K-12s? Cause you know, that, like you had said, SLTTs, um, what's, what's that like at MSI SAC right now? Yeah. So what I do specifically, and I, my role's changed a little bit since I came in, I, I really came in to run the cyber threat intelligence team, uh, and then quick relatively quickly after getting here, uh, there was a gap in a more senior position uh, and that involved overseeing both the Intel team and what we call the liaison team. So we have some folks that are embedded within the federal government and they all are clearance holders and they trans, they really their job is to translate the needs of the SLTT community, which is state, local, tribal and territorial governments into language that the federal government understands and translate the federal priorities into language that the SLTT community understands. So you might imagine they're looking at different things, right? right? From an SLTT perspective, they're really looking at what's happening on the wire, what's you know related to my risk posture in the here and now. And the federal government's looking at generally, I don't want to necessarily call it more strategic, but they're looking at different data sets. They're looking at intelligence-derived data. A lot of that information is classified. That's not stuff that can easily be shared with with unclassified audiences. And as you might imagine, most K-12 schools don't have classified personnel on staff, and, uh, nor do they have the facility to ingest that kind of information. So we're kind of a broker. Uh, we, we kind of sit in the middle and, and help translate that information to, to SLTT communities. We, li- we like to think that we're uh, capable of handling classified information. So you can trust capable. us. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> sure. <laughs> lots of capable folks. Uh, but from an authority's perspective, right? You know, you, that's where you get into trouble. Um, and it, you know, and then recently we we reorganized, and and the rest of the operational teams uh, had now been 
become part of my charge. So we have a 24 by seven security operations center. Uh, we have a cyber incident response team. Uh, the two I mentioned, which was our cyber threat intelligence and our liaison team. And we also have a vulnerability management program. And then in addition to all that, we have a whole bunch of support stuff, but those five teams are, are part of my responsibility. And so we, it is broader than K-12. We have about 14,000 members today. And those are everything that you can think of from you know, at the state and below level that is taxpayer funded. So libraries, K through 12 schools, public higher education, counties, cities, towns, election organizations, parks and rec, public safety, public utilities. It really runs the gamut. Uh, so, you know, it's a, it's a broad spectrum with a lot of varying maturity, a lot of varying sure. requirements. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's a big, hmm. big task. And, and where does, you know, it, you, you name some big ones, like elections has got to be a huge component of what you're doing and utilities has got to be growing as well. Where does K-12 fall in the landscape of, of all the different uh, areas that you're supporting? Well, I don't, I don't think we prioritize any specific sector over another sector. You could maybe argue elections, but in reality, we actually, our organization is two different ISACs in one. So we're both the multi-state ISAC and the election infrastructure ISAC. Okay. So while they're, you know, they're, they're essentially a, you know, have a dedicated team for our elections, but outside of elections, every other organization or sector, we, we don't necessarily prioritize any of them uh, over any others. What I will say is the MS ISAC has made a, a concerted effort to onboard as many K-12 schools as possible in recent years. And the reason for this, and we've, seen our K-12 membership grow significantly. The reason for this is K-12 schools are, are kind of uniquely positioned comparatively, right? They have a massive amount of user, I'll call them untrusted users, as if from an IT administration standpoint, there's such a thing as a trusted user, right? I think most, <laughs> yeah, most admins no. would say there <laughs> that is. That doesn't exist, yeah. Yeah, exactly. So, but you guys, you know, really from a, think about it from like an insider threat, you know, again, it's kind of negative sounding and I don't mean it in the sense that, you know, students are insider threats, but they're the potential for insider threat is higher in a school district than in most other organizations. And so that just that alone is, is really a unique landscape to operate within. But then you also have massive technology requirements and remote technology requirements that don't yeah. exist for a lot of other sectors. And, and, landscape. and a ton of PII. That's the next thing I was going to say. Yeah. Not only PII, there's PHI, right? So there's health information, there's, True. you know, which is arguably more valuable than PII. Um, and it's not just PII of, so in other organizations, you have PII associated with your staff. In schools, you have PII associated with people who haven't even entered the workforce yet, right? So there's, you're talking about something that's potentially damaging to somebody years down the road if that information is leaked right. or stolen. And on top of all that, you have all these other requirements, right? You have all these requirements in K-12, but no real regulatory cybersecurity requirements. There's no, there's no like one thing, one organization, one statute that K-12 has to abide by from a security perspective. So everybody's left to figure this out on your own. Right. And there are a lot of resources to follow, whether, you know, from a financial resource perspective, from a technology resource perspective, and also from a human capital resource perspective. You guys are competing again to try to get IT and cybersecurity professionals into your organization while competing with major organizations that can pay people hundreds of thousands of dollars, hundreds of thousands of dollars to, you know, work 
from home. So yeah, it's like an impossible well, task. And and not only that, it's you know competing on the pay scale is one thing, but just competing to get the positions in your organization is the biggest problem that we see. It's, it you know they're they're chief everything officers where every you know those of us in in this role we're doing the break fix the networking the security at the same time and so we don't have for the most part school districts don't have that dedicated lens to security it's like in my spare time i'll see if i can fit some stuff in yeah, yeah. you're not dual hatted you're like quadruple <laughs> quintuple hatted right yeah yeah, yeah yeah and we see that everywhere right we see in k12s across the country that is that's what we hear. That's what we see. So yeah, it's, it's a huge task. And that's one of the things that I think the MSI SAC brings that uh, a lot of other organizations don't bring is we're, we're at least in part federally funded and the parent company, the center for internet security is a not-for-profit. So we're really not in the business of trying to sell you services. We're not a, a vendor, right? We're, we give the bulk of our services away at no cost. So we can be a game changer, I think, for a lot of K through 12 schools in that we can provide services that don't cost you anything. So right. you can take the limited resources you have and spend them where your gaps and seams are, yep. the things that we don't provide. A great example of that um, we signed up for the cyber hygiene service about a year ago. We signed up for MDBR about a year ago. Um, and, and I, I love every, I think it's every Monday or Tuesday afternoon, we get the email from the MDBR saying, you know, you've had 4 million DNS lookups you've had a thousand, uh, malicious hits. These are the top 10 that they are. These are why they're marked malicious or suspect. Um, I, I love if, if anybody out there is not subscribed to the MDBR service, that is one of the easiest things that you can subscribe to and get it set up in about. 10 minutes at the most, you just point your forwarders to the, to the addresses that the, that the SOC gives you from, from MSI SAC and away you go. Like you're, you're immediately uh, using that black hole DNS. And, and it's a, it's not really a black hole DNS, right? It's, it's a curated list that you guys have. Well, it's so, yeah, I was going to say, we should probably explain what MDBR is. So it's the malicious domain blocking and reporting service. And it's a, uh, it's actually, it's, I'd probably describe it more as a recursive DNS solution. So we do that in partnership with Akamai and uh, we're able to provide that uh, for free to, to state, local, tribal, and territorial governments, including K-12 schools. And um, on average, I don't have the K-12 numbers specifically, but across all of our membership, on average, we block about 230 million attempts to malicious infrastructure per month. Uh, so it's a massive, yeah, it's, a, it's a massive <laughs> amount of traffic that we're able to, to block. And um, and essentially how it works is there's a combination of things. So there's there are blocks that are put in place that are based in curated intelligence that my cyber threat intelligence team is pulling together uh, and the output of some incidents that we're tracking across other entities. We're able to, you know, if we know it, like, let's say there's an ongoing incident uh, in a, a Midwestern state and we know the indicators of compromise associated with the domains that are in, in that particular incident, we can push those into MDBR very quickly. But the, I think the real meat in using MDBR is that it's actually powered by Akamai's machine learning. And so it's very fast. It's, it, there's things that, there's, that are beneficial to, to schools in particular using that service that we wouldn't be able to do from a manual perspective. So one of the things that, that we struggle with in the CTI realm and, and 
incident response in general is things that are like domain generated algorithm domains that, that are created mm. very quickly. They have a very short lifespan. Unless you have a mechanism to, to detect the pattern that is created, like what a DGA generated domain looks like, you're likely to miss that because you, you know, to do it manually, you'd have to know what the precise name of the domain is. So that's just one example where the machine learning aspects of MDBR actually provide a massive amount of protection and are just really valuable uh, in, in blocking potential, potentially malicious sites. Or, I mean, in the case of DGA generated domains, there really is, I, I can not really think of a legitimate reason for, for any of them to for exist. Allowing so. them. Yeah. So, so do you feel that, or, or do you have any information or data around this is inbound traffic? This is outbound traffic. I mean, you know, you talked to beginning about how we have a large percentage of, of, you know, untrustworthy or untrusted users, meaning like we have our students who are trying to get to websites that we don't really want them to get to. Then you have the malicious actors on the outside. So where are you seeing with K-12, where are you seeing that traffic coming, either coming or going? We see both in, in both aspects. So one of the things that's that's it's both a limiting factor of something like a recursive DNS solution, but it's also beneficial, and is that you it's all based on the domain itself. So if you're if you're able to detect and block activity going to a specific domain, it doesn't mitigate. If like, let's say that domain is, is, uh, is the result of, or the, the activity going to that domain is the result of a piece of malware beaconing out, it's not gonna stop that malware from being in your environment, right? You'd still have to go back and, and figure that out. Like what is actually causing us to see spikes going out to this domain or, or this yep. cluster of domains. So the recursive DNS solution isn't gonna solve that piece of it, uh, but it is gonna prevent further infection. If the piece of malware is going is attempting to reach out to the domain because that domain is its command and control server and it can't get to that well then that malware is essentially stalled yeah. it's not getting yeah. its further instructions uh, but it works in both ways that's a really good point i i i, I hadn't really thought of that that you know it, it really doesn't do much from from removing it from your network but phone that phoning home process is what is what mdbr is really good at killing well, it's, it's good there. And it's also good if, you know, especially in what we see in like early stage ransomware attacks or, you know, obviously in just about every attack, the, the number one vector that we see is through phishing emails, right? That tends to be the, the, the most prevalent infection vector. And so a lot of those are actually going to, you click on a malicious link and it's doing a redirect somewhere in the back end, redirecting you to some other site. And often those are, you know, either known malicious sites or, they meet different criteria, right? They were just registered that day and they're not categorized yet or they're a DGA generated domain. And so MDBR is able to actually detect that. If it meets certain criteria, it'll block that site. Hmm. And so, so it can prevent somebody clicking on the link from actually downloading right. malware into your environment or, hmm. or whatever the next stage is, right? Whether it's, yeah. doesn't, it's not always a, a malware infection, but. So you mentioned the buzzword ransomware. I, I think that's one of the things we've done a couple interviews with schools that have been hit with ransomware and they've been awesome enough to come on and tell us about their, their story. Um, I think it's probably the, the, one of the things that strikes the most fear into an IT director's heart. I know it's definitely mine. Um, yes. Tuesday, I guess it was uh, MS ISAC and the FBI released a joint 
uh, alert statement about uh, Vice Society's uh, ramping up their attacks on K-12 school districts. Uh, can you kind of help us unpack that or explain that, what what uh, MSISAC and the FBI's driver behind releasing that information in, in a, such a pointed manner? I think that's, that's probably one of the first times that I remember seeing a release or an alert like that being very, very, very specific to K-12 and very, very um, almost imminent threat type language. Can you kind of help us unpack that? Sure. Yeah. The, the first thing I'll say is this was uh, truly a joint effort between uh, not just us and the FBI, but also CISA and DHS CISA actually, uh, for their part, really facilitated the joint analysis. So while the the bulk of the material from a technical perspective came from my team and the FBI, the facilitation, getting everybody in the room and, and getting this product created was, was really done uh, by the production team at, at, at DHS as just a phenomenal job. I don't think we've ever done a joint product that quickly either. I mean, that was published Tuesday morning. It was worked on Monday evening, hmm. Monday afternoon and evening and pushed out uh, Tuesday, relatively early in the day, I think, you know, by about lunchtime or so, Yeah, um, which is in absolutely incredible. It was under 24 hours, which is, uh, you know, when you think about government bureaucracy, I mean, that's <laughs> right. really an, an right. incredible timeline. Uh, but yeah, looking at the, the data, I mean, Vice Society is, is a relatively young ransomware group. They really only emerged last year. Um, I think the earliest that we saw was mid-2021. Uh, in that time frame, they've targeted at least 10 schools in the U.S., at least five in the U.K., and a number of other. And, th and these are not higher education. This is like, you know, public primary and secondary schools, um, and then several others around the world as well. And so schools actually make up a decent percentage, something like 20% of their overall victims. They uh, they seem to, in in just the last few weeks, hit a number of schools. So we're tracking at least four other cases uh, in K-12 just within the last few weeks, uh, here in the, in, in the U S. And so I, that's a big part of, and it, you know, we do expect K-12 schools every year, the MSI SAC sees an uptick in targeting of K-12 between August and October. And then we also see a slight uptick around the end of the school year. So May, June timeframe. And the rest of the year we see, you know, big dips and certainly ransomware actors are, keen on a number of things, right? They're, they know when our holidays are and they tend to launch attacks before three-day weekend when people are distracted or trying to get out the door. Uh, we also, we, so we, you know, Labor Day is a good one for them. The Christmas holiday season is a good one for them. Um, so they, they're aware of those kinds of things that, that take us, uh, that distract us. They also recognize the beginning of the school year. They know there's a lot of pressure on, on IT staff to have all of the technology. And typically IT staff are focused at least at the beginning of the year on availability, right? So right. making sure all the services are working, yep. making sure people can get to what they need to. Teachers are able to log in, you know, for God forbid schools have, you know, bring your own device, uh, <laughs> the, 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 the Wi-Fi is working, you know, like all these kinds of things. Um, and so they know like attention is diverted, right? To in right. these areas. And so they're, they're trying to take advantage of the chaos. And so I, I, that was a big, you know, justification behind why the FBI really wanted to get information out quickly. And they're also recognizing 
I think the, the federal government in general, we're still struggling with this a little bit in the Intel community, but the FBI is, is really recognizing that you know, cyber moves so much faster than some of the, the traditional case work that they've done. So they have to get, in order for something to be a viable indicator that people can run with, it has to be out in cyber relevant time. So you can't sit on something for six weeks or six months and then push it out. Yeah. Yeah. So you can do that stuff for retroactive analysis, but how many schools have six months worth of logs? How many, anybody, yeah. right? How many, any business is keeping six months worth of logs that they can go back and do retro hunt in. So getting that, that information out as quickly as possible, even in this case, I mean, the FBI is not necessarily known for putting stuff out in the middle of an active investigation, but they did in this case. Hmm. You know, so I think that's really, you know, that's a, that's a huge driver behind getting this information out as quickly as possible. They want it to be usable. They recognize this is, this is the time for schools. They're going to be seeing this across the board. And you hit it on the head. The the start of the school year marks marks in the heart of it right now. And just, you know, it's everybody's on the struggle bus, man. For the first, for the first for us this year, it was two weeks. Those first two weeks of school were rough. Like my guys were running and there's there we don't we're not staffed. Uh we don't have a huge staff in our department. So my guys were running all over the place, and we only have 250 staff members. So um in 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 larger districts of any size, I couldn't imagine if if you don't have the appropriate number of staff, you're running around like a chicken with your head cut off for weeks. Um, and it's just unfortunate those guys know, like you said, take advantage of the chaos. And, and that I I don't know how you put it in a better manner because um, that's exactly what they're doing. Yeah. No. I. I. But I want to know what are they trying to get to right and so i think there there's you, you've talked about all the what the vice society and they're trying to get in and they're you know cause chaos or take advantage of the chaos but then what are they trying to ransomware us and and take us for money are they trying to steal pii phi like what what's the end goal for a, a group like vice society so vice society is a, a ransomware group right but you know really when you think about it from a they fall into the broader category of cyber criminals. So if you're thinking through the, the criminal mindset and what they go for, it's no different than, you know, a hundred years ago as bank robbers, right? Their, their end goal is to make a buck. The problem that we have, and I was actually, I, I teach part-time and I was talking to my class last night about cyber criminals. The, one of the, the issues that, that we have in cyberspace is, you know, compared to, hundred years ago or or you know just even you know 50 years ago if you wanted to to get money if you wanted to rob a bank you had to physically be in the space where the money was and cyberspace is not like that there are no physical boundaries so whether you're talking about a state-sponsored actor who's engaged in some kind of electronic warfare or cyber-based warfare to complete an objective or you're talking about a cyber criminal who's trying to make money or even a state actor who's trying to make money because you know we don't, don't often talk about it but there are state actors who are uh, in the business of, you know, deploying ransomware and making money for themselves. So even in those those cases, you know, the, the boundaries of defense are are gone, right? You don't physically have to be in the same space anymore. So it's it's a tricky thing from a defense perspective, but ultimately with cyber criminals, the end goal is making money. This particular group appears to really be ransomware focused. The Vice Society is known for double extortion. So what one of the things that they do is they exfiltrate a lot of or remove a lot of data from your environment 
prior to deploying ransomware. And a lot of ransomware groups have started to do this in general, but this group in particular it appears to be a pattern. So they will exist in a network for a while. They will take a lot of data that will include PII, PHI, um, any kind of sensitive data, network maps, all that kind of stuff, and then threaten to release that or if they don't get a payment. And they often will do that weeks after deploying ransomware. So they deploy ransomware, they hope to get a payment there, you pay them once, maybe your data, you get a key, some of your data is recovered, hopefully most of it's not corrupted. You're going through your recovery operations and then you get hit with you know, a double extortion. Hey, you know, we exfiltrated all this information, you have to pay us again or we're gonna release this on, on the, you know, release this publicly or sell it to other cyber criminals. How often are you seeing entities pay in, in a in an effort to prevent the data from being posted publicly and the data is posted publicly anyway? Uh, I don't know if I have good stats on that. I mean, I, we definitely see entities paying initial ransoms uh, way more than we would like to see. Sure. So our stance and the MSI SAC stance and the FBI stance and my personal stance is don't pay the ransom. And there's a, a lot of reasons for that. Um, certainly, I sort of just touched on one of them. The, the percentage, it's a very high percent chance that your data will not be fully recoverable, even if you pay the ransom. So these guys are not, uh, they're encrypting with ransomware that's developed by just somebody, some you know malware coder. They're not going through a rigorous process that you know, a Q like, and A uh, process. <laughs> yeah. So exactly <laughs> right, and they they haven't tested all the different types of data that you have um, to make sure that you know your data is properly recoverable. Sometimes they don't even have the proper key anymore. So you pay the ransom, and then you get a key that doesn't even work, a decryption key that doesn't even work. Uh, you know, there, there's all sorts of issues. So your best bet is to to work through. Well, first, it's to prevent do everything you can to prevent being the victim of a ransomware attack and then be prepared to recover your data, not pay and just do go through the recovery process. So making sure you have offline backups and things like that are crucial. Unfortunately, you know, we've, we had for a while been tracking what schools and other entities had paid from a ransom perspective. For a while, it was it was you know around two hundred twenty thousand was the max, and then we were around three hundred thousand as the max. Uh, in the last few months, we've started to this hasn't officially been told to us. Like there wasn't a school that said this is how much we paid, but we heard through the grapevine from some of our members that there are some schools that have paid upwards of two million dollars. Oh my god! In ransom payments, yeah. So, you know, when you factor all those kinds of things in, I mean, the recovery operations, the, the how much it costs to recover. And restore services on top of paying a two million dollar ransom. Right. You know, just the financial impact. Not even thinking through the emotional impact, the the impact on things like missed school days, late exams. Uh, I mean, just the impacts are just very broad and how, hard to quantify. How and you you may not know the answer to this question, but how often are you seeing insurance companies step in? and say, we're, we're taking over negotiations and we are making the decision on whether or not the ransom is getting paid. Because I, I think from the stories that I'm hearing kind of anecdotally is that insurance companies might be more willing or, or have a lower threshold um, 
to agree to pay. What are you guys seeing the same trend or? I wish I could give you a good answer. Typically when a insurance company is invoked, we end up getting uh, strong armed out of the equation. Yeah. So we offer incident response services. And so we, we always recommend that uh, any taxpayer funded organization at least come to us initially because we can typically respond quickly. But once they invoke their cyber insurance policy, there's usually one of two things happens. The 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 policy, if they're not already familiar with us, will tell them, hey, don't work with this organization anymore while we figure this out. And the other, or the other thing is we have already, you know, we already know who the organization is that we want you to work with, that we want you to work with this IR vendor. And so we turn everything over at that point, typically to the, to the other vendor. I don't have good information on whether or not the like actual insurance companies are paying or have a lower threshold or you know how often they're paying but i do know that uh, one of the things that we've we've come we've heard from and we've done a little bit of research into it ourselves and so we always recommend if you are going to use cyber insurance be very very careful about you know reading every line understanding what the fine line says because some policies don't outright say it but they will refuse to pay ransoms and they and some policies refuse to pay out if something is determined to be an act of war yeah, but exactly what an act of war is is unclear, right? So, you know, if if just because something is a group is attributed to being a state actor, doesn't necessarily mean it's an act of war. And certainly, depending on who you talk to, right? If you're talking to somebody within the federal government, they're going to say, "Well, these are actions below the threshold of war." But an insurance company might say, "Nope, this is a a government affiliated group. That's an act of war. We're not going to pay out." So wow. we just recommend that you know you really you know, when it comes to cyber insurance, just make sure you do your homework, read every line carefully, understand what you're getting yourself into, make sure your counsel has looked at it and approved it, you know, all that stuff. Do you, well, go oh, ahead, Mark. I was, I was just going to pivot because now that you've got us good and scared and <laughs> <laughs> as Josh would say, the pucker factor is raised yes, uh, is right, right now. Yeah. yeah. What do we do now? <laughs> right. So you talked about the prevention and the recovery strategy. So what are those things that you see? And, and when you see a district get hit or taken over by ransomware, you always say, oh, God, I, I've been saying this for years, but why didn't they do X, Y, and Z? Admin rights. Let me guess. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, certainly, you know, I, I think there's a few key things um, that we see over and over again. Certainly educating your staff is always big because, again, we, we talked about phishing emails being a, a number one vector in, but we do see you know, the, certainly like Vice Society is a great example of uh, of a group that leveraged a common vulnerability. We, you know, we saw evidence that they leveraged Log4j in some cases, right? So the, the or Log, I should say Log4Shell, right? Vulnerabilities in the, in the Java-based logging framework Log4j uh, to get into a web server, right? So, so they have different options. They have, you know, things they can do. It's not always just phishing. Um, sometimes they can leverage remote services. So, Look, making sure you're cleaning up your accounts. If you're if you're leveraging, if you have a any kind of internet-facing footprint, you know, web servers that are open to the public, remote services that allow employees to connect in remotely. Just really making sure that the controls around those environments are really tight. I worked with a guy many years ago in the in the Navy who thought that you know patching was everything, and I certainly think keeping your systems up to date is is crucially important, but it's it's not everything, right? So there's other, there are other controls that you have to have in place. If patching was everything, then 
and solved every problem, then we wouldn't have issues like what we saw with solar winds. We wouldn't have log4j, right? There are zero day exploits for a reason. So yes, you should keep things patched and up to date, uh, but it's not gonna solve every problem. So certainly you know, I'd be remiss if I didn't point out the CIS controls. We try to make it as easy as possible. Um, so it's, they're freely available to anybody by going to the Center for Internet Security website downloading the controls and just working through them from you know implementation group one through implementation group three, start at the beginning, make sure you have all your stuff in order. And I would say, you know, for ransomware, one of the, you know, the biggest things that, that can help at least keep the, the, the infection from spreading, um, practicing good network segmentation techniques and really, you know, controlling access to different segments of the network is very helpful in a lot of cases. Uh, and then the other thing would be just assume that at some point you are going to be compromised and make sure you have a really good incident response plan in place. In the average K-12 district, it's not, you're not necessarily going to have all the incident responders already on staff and that's okay, but know who the people are to call. You know, who can go, who can actually go in and unplug stuff? Who can, you know, who needs to be notified? Who's the decision maker? Um, who are the people that need from facilities that need to be called in, right? If somebody needs to get in after hours, uh, do you invoke local law enforcement? Do you call the FBI? Do you notify our staff? Uh, maybe, you know, to invoke our incident response services. Um, do you call a cyber insurance company? Or all those things need to be figured out ahead of time because the last, the, literally the worst time to figure any of this kind of stuff out is in the middle of a crisis, right? So have all that figured out ahead of time assume there will be a crisis yeah. and then everybody knows the role that they play in that crisis. Um, so switch again, switching gears a little bit, uh, CISA and well, actually the white house signed a order, I guess, for CISA to look at K 12 cyber law, some recommendations for all K 12s. You know, you had mentioned earlier, there is really not a single organization out there that is willing to to say to K-12 as a whole nationwide or even statewide at a state level, you need to do X, Y, Z. Um, but apparently CISA, CISA has been ordered to kind of look at that. Do you have any insight into what might be coming down the pike or, or have you heard anything about that? I haven't. So the, the that order, I believe, was just like uh, issued this week. Okay. Um, so, uh, you know, you, when you started, you're talking about LA Unified. Um, I am tracking that LA Unified actually uh, had contact with the White House when this was going down. Uh, and so I think in, in part, some of what exactly what you're talking about um, with direction to CISA came out of that conversation that LA Unified had with the White House. Uh, and I, you know, it is, you know, on one hand, it is, it's surprising that a school district has, you know, contacts in the White yeah. House, but on the other hand, I mean, it's the second largest district in the country, I believe. So, you know, maybe it's not that surprising. I don't know, right. but, um, you know, there's, CISA has a massive mission. They have a ton on their plate. They have some really great people on their staff. I'm sure that, um, given the time and, I'm hoping that, you know, this is something that they're prioritizing and they, and they literally they have, I know there are people that would absolutely 100% want to prioritize it, just whether or not they have the ability to prioritize it with all of the other things going on, you know, tax on utilities and public sector. And obviously we have a midterm election coming up and, 
two months. So there's a lot of other priority items also on the docket that, that are kind of part of CISA's, uh, you know, sheet of responsibilities. So we got a lot of stuff going on. Uh, so, you know, I, I think, yes, this is something that they absolutely are going to do. How much they can dedicate to it in the short term. Right. I really don't have any insight into, unfortunately. Um, so we've talked a little bit about the services that MSISAC and CI Security offer. Um, why don't you tell our listeners real quick how to reach out to your organization and find out what other what what free services are available and what uh, fee for services are available. Um, the easiest way to get in contact with somebody with with your organization. I think the easiest is probably to navigate to our website. So the Center for Internet Security's website is cisecurity.org, just charlieindiasecurity.org. Um, once there, there is a, you can either search for the uh, MSI stack and the, there's a search bar up in the top. Our, our website used to be fairly difficult to navigate. So it's a lot easier now, uh, but there's actually a tile on the front page. If you scroll down just a little bit, you'll see a, a tile that says MSI SAC and EII SAC, and there's a learn more option. So you can click that. Uh, there's also a join CIS uh, pull down at the top that has the MSI SAC there. And it, so going in there, you know, there's a couple options that you can click around. You can find some of the different services. Um, if you submit a request here, it'll go to a shared inbox. You could also just email that inbox directly, which is info, I-N-F-O, at cisecurity.org. One of the reasons I recommend going to the website, though, there's a lot of other stuff that CIS offers. I mentioned the controls. There's also benchmarks. A lot of that stuff is uh, services that you would pay for. But if you are a state, local travel, or territorial government, or K-12 school, you can get a lot of those things that are paid for services at no cost. Uh, so it's definitely worth at least reaching out talking to one of our stakeholder engagement folks, they can run you through all of the different things that we offer. Uh, we didn't even touch on many of them uh, here today. So it's a lot of different things that uh, that are available and uh, and your listeners can can get all that. They can get a one-on-one -on -one brief. Uh, they can, you know, join a, a new member webinar, all those kinds of things. And I think, you know, one of the things that um, you keep mentioning, IG1, one of the enhanced controls, I think at the conference, it was said that if you if you take all of the items in IG1 and you address those vulner, vulnerabilities or those policy procedure type things, um, that you would address the majority of the attack vectors of some of the threats that that are going around in the public right now. Yeah, so we we pulled together something called the community defense model, um, and I don't have I don't recall the numbers off the top of my head, but one of the things that that the controls team did, and they actually did it in concert with folks from my team, is um, we looked at the top threat vectors in the MITRE attack framework. So we took like the top 10 there and we literally mapped, you know, what defense mechanism or what control would mitigate this particular attack. And they mapped, literally mapped all those out. If, you know, if you have this control mapped with this control in place, it eliminates this threat vector entirely or 99% of it. So they, they did a bunch of math and, and they figured it out. So if you look in the, it's, it's called the CDM, the community defense model in that documentation, it lays a lot of that out. All right, cool. Um, Mark, do you have any more questions for Randy? 
Uh, no, but I'm thoroughly afraid right now. <laughs> freaked out. I'm That's on their website. Goal. I will. I will compliment the, the the new website is fantastic. It's a really good uh, overhaul. Very easy to find information. It has a little like alert at the top tells us we're in a guarded mode right now. So, yeah, lowers your your anxiety level just a little. Just a little, but still high. <laughs> a little bit. Guarded. Uh, I'm guarded. I'm guarded right you're now. You're guarded, like, right? I'm going to start using that. Are you nervous? No, I'm guarded. Um, I feel a little <laughs> like that. We love it. The cybersecurity community loves to uh, buy into the sensationalism. I, I try not to do that too much. So hopefully I didn't scare anybody. Uh, there is a lot of hope. Well, There's a good. Lot of hope. I'm, I'm glad to hear that. <laughs> well, yeah, you, you, you have to scare people a little bit. I mean, I think that's the problem is with K-12, we it's get true. our guard down and then that allows, you know, things to get loose and things to get, you know, comfortable. And that's, that's exactly what people are wanting to take advantage of. So, and you throw in it, some chaos and it's, it's, it's yeah. a great, great scenario for somebody to take advantage of things. Um, I've, the, I've, uh, go ahead. I was going to say, what's the, uh, the the room on fire meme, right? Right. Yeah. This is Everything's fine. fine right? Yeah. It's fine. It's fine. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's and fine. I, I've talked about that here before where we, I, I was pushing for MFA on our email accounts and I really, I got a little bit of traction and got our leadership to MFA their accounts, but you know, there was a hard no on, on everybody doing it. And this was a couple of years ago until we had an incident and a teacher lost, unfortunately, a good sum of money of her personal money. And then after that story became a little bit public in our, in our district, the, the, uh, the, the, how do I want to put this? We put, we rolled MFA out. I mean, like it was okay. Yeah. Light bulb went off. This is real. Anybody can fall for it kind of thing. So um, we were just lucky. It was just money and not account access uh, that we lost control over. So um, it it's real. It can happen to anybody. And uh you know that like that's why these alerts from MSISAC and and the folks at CISA and FBI or and Homeland Security are important to take note of, and and pay attention to. So, well, you know, uh, I, I remember I'm old enough to to remember my my first foray in the military. You know, we just it was username and password, and I was there when we transitioned to to you know I would call it multi-factor authentication for the military was a common access card, so you had to have a physical token and a PIN. I think maybe initially it was a physical token and a password, and then switched to a pin. Uh, but there was a there was a huge blowback, right? <laughs> so uh, within the military, it was a massive culture change to to tell people like, no, you have to log in with this now. And I remember, you know, even thinking through like other organizations telling them they had to, you know, rotate their passwords or change or have more password complexity. I mean, even those little things that we know I, I, today, I think you know, a long enough password, we probably don't need to be rotating passwords as frequently as we do. It's really, you know, having good passwords is the is the key, and then moving towards a multi-factor authentication solution is a much better model than, you know, having people change their passwords every month or something like right. that. Right. Right. Um, but in any case, like, yeah, I, I think exactly what you're talking about. Unfortunately, around that same time that we moved to common access cards, based security also moved. You know, this is post 9/11, right? It took a 9-11 type attack wow. for us to change the way that we did base security on most military installations. They used to just wave people through. They'd see the sticker on your window and wave you through. And then they moved to hundred percent ID check post 9-11. So, you know, unfortunately sometimes these kinds of things do take a, a, an unfortunate crisis 
yeah reading your name in the paper or, or having that experience <laughs> right. you know where right. to finally get some forward movement uh randy we really appreciate you coming on we've uh we've taken up about an hour's worth of your time uh and we we really appreciate that um we hope maybe in the future you'll come back on and talk about some other current threats you know if there's another uh important alert that comes out or just taking a pulse uh of the k-12 cyber environment and, and what's what's going on yeah i'd love to uh and maybe you know maybe we can talk about uh music or uh yeah. you know <laughs> yeah i know i think mark's a big music fan right mark i'm i'm staring at rainy's background he's got bass guitars hanging and it's a very impressive background i got some records <laughs> yeah randy Talk actually makes music i just play it <laughs> i didn't you don't know if i make good music though that's, <laughs> that's a trick i might just make noise <laughs> hey it doesn't matter all right, Randy, we appreciate you coming on. Thanks. Uh, and uh, hopefully I won't need to call your company or, you know, MSI SAC and, and, and need your services. Um, hopefully hopefully you won't be hearing from me anymore. Uh, but seriously, we, we do appreciate you spending some time with us tonight. Thank you, Randy. Yeah, my pleasure. So, Mark, now that you're thoroughly scared, do you want to talk about... Uh, power supplies real quick or some power for protection <laughs> um eating eating trip light uh no they're they're not i keep making that stupid joke they're not eating trip light it's eaten they bought trip light and they're one company eating trip light now uh so eaten uh asked us to talk about their classroom solutions now and and i'm having a problem finding my tab uh but they they do have a whole sweet lineup for classroom solutions they do everything from uh, charging carts, USB and AC charging carts up to 48 tablets or 36 laptops and a cart that you can charge at one time. And, you know, I, I everybody's seen those before. Um, everybody has Chromebooks. So Eaton and Triplight make those. Uh, display stands on wheels. So if you're going with a smart display type environment, you're moving away from the old school smart boards and going to a interactive display. Uh, Triplight has models of carts or uh, stands that are on wheels that will accommodate those things. Surge protectors, power strips, battery backups, cables, uh, wall mount racks. We've got several wall mount Triplight racks in, in our environment. So, you know, it's not it's not just UPSs anymore. It's uh, a whole suite of products that they can uh, accommodate you and, and, and accommodate your needs. I'm, I'm sure... They would tell you if you have a problem, they have a solution uh, when it comes to power and wire management and rack management. So we appreciate Eaton uh, sponsoring us. We'd really appreciate it if you tweeted us. If you liked this interview with Randy tonight, uh, give us give us uh, some feedback. Send us an email, k12techtalk at gmail.com. We're on Twitter, k12techtalkpod. Share us with your friends, your neighboring districts the groups that you meet with. I think this information from Randy tonight is uh, valuable enough that uh, it, it could be shared with probably any school district, even, even if they are already an MSISAC member and they would get something out of tonight's conversation. Uh, so please, please share us with uh, your cohorts and your meeting groups. Mark, any closing thoughts tonight? No, I think one thing we didn't mention is the the one missing thing from the episode. But oh yeah, Chris, where, Chris is a slacker. Yeah, yeah, Chris, Chris bailed on us again. But maybe, yep. maybe next week. Yep, exactly. Yep. All right. Well, we appreciate everybody listening, and uh, we'll see you next week. Thanks. Thank you.